0: All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us today. Today, we have Todd Winning, who is the Senior Investment Analyst at Ensemble Capital. He's here to talk to us about all things stock investing. So Todd, thank you very much for taking the time to come talk to us today. We really appreciate it. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to you guys, and we'll go ahead and get our our little conversation started.
1: Yeah, Todd, thanks for coming on. I want to start with moats because I feel like investors probably can't talk enough about them, <laughs> in my opinion. They're fascinating and they are key when it comes to looking at good companies. Maybe for somebody who's just tuning in for the first time as a beginner, can you explain what a moat is? And then maybe we can talk about how you look for them. Sure.
2: Thanks very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, I would say my introduction to moats came from joining Morningstar as a sell-side analyst in 2011. And that was really a transformational educational moment for me as an investor, because before I would think, this company's done really well. Look how big it is. Look at its market share. Maybe that's a key part of its advantage, but that isn't enough. You kind of need to have a framework for filtering companies and understanding competitive advantage durable and so that's the key part of economic moat analysis. So moat, the term moat comes from Warren Buffett, who described when capitalism, you have a castle and everybody is trying to attack your castle, especially if you start generating good returns. And so what you want is a wide moat around that castle to keep people from attacking your castles. Yep. You know, Few people can elaborate and illustrate moats better than Warren Buffett. That's the best analogy to think about what it is. But from a more technical aspect, thinking about moats is as a durable competitive advantage. So, what Buffett's trying to get at is that when you have success with a product or a service, and especially today's world where c- competition is strong and it's increasingly global, uh, capital is no longer a barrier. So if you look back and you read the biographies of Nike or Walmart, they had trouble getting capital, even though they were extremely profitable, growing quickly, banks wouldn't give them a loan. And today that's just unheard of. You can walk down the street and get capitalized <laughs> if you have a, a compelling story. Capital is no longer a constraint. So what it really comes down to is barriers to entry and barriers to scale. And so those two factors are the way to think about economic modes. And in capitalism, if you have a good product or a good service, people are going to try to copy it. And what is it structurally about your business? The way you operate, uh, your corporate culture, your attitude, whatever it might be, your What prevents people from doing the same thing that you're doing? And so at Morningstar, one of the things I learned was there are a couple of buckets for thinking about competitive advantages, about moats. So one is network effects. And we hear a lot about that now with tech, especially with Facebook. The idea being the more people that join a platform, the more valuable that platform becomes. And it becomes harder to replicate or do something similar to that model when everyone's already on Facebook. If we try to launch our own Facebook today, it'd be much more difficult to do because Facebook has this billion user (laughs) lead ahead of everybody else. Then you have switching costs. So this is classic of like business to business sort of service where once it's ingrained in your process, this service, the software, the cost of switching to another service or Piece of equipment or whatever it might be is very costly. So you have to retrain your employees, or you have to learn a whole new process, and all these things take time, and that adds to the cost. So companies are unwilling to change to another product unless the new offering is extremely compelling, is at a lower cost, or has some sort of material advantage. So if you have switching costs, that helps companies defend against new competent. Another is intangible assets. That's a pretty wide range of inputs. So that could be brand. It could be the way you do something that you have some sort of patent protected process or some unique process that other people can't do. So that's a pretty wide bucket. Then you have low cost production. So this is primarily in the industrial or basic materials industry where you're able to produce widgets or products or services at a price that's well below uh, everybody else and they would have a really hard time to get to your price point we we can see that also however in the manufacturing space people creating products that are extremely cheap and hard to replicate but you also have that in in retail trying to match what Costco is offering is really hard to do. So you have a cost advantage there. And so those are really the, the four main buckets for filtering modes. They're not the only buckets, but they're really the, the best way to start thinking about what the source of the company's competitive mode is. And, and really what we're looking for in, as investors at Ensemble are unfair advantages. Whether they're Basically, these guys are playing games that nobody else can play. They're just... So far, ahead, of everybody else that they're almost working on it at a different wavelength as everybody else. And so those companies are extremely rare. And we're, that's what we're trying to find is companies that have these advantages that nobody else can do, or it would take 10 years to do. And so that gives us confidence as investors to forecast the business and say, this company is going to compound value at a, a high rate over many years. And that was an attractive setup for us.
1: Yeah, that's that such a good overview of having those different buckets and really so many different businesses that can have one part of that or maybe a mix of those. And so when you look across the stocks that we can buy and you see a moat or two moats or a combination, is there a price that's too expensive for these moats? Or is there some gray area where maybe you pay more for a pri- for a, a good moat? But not too much and like how is that defined in your case?
2: yeah so let's let's take a, a step back because valuation is a por- important to understand and really what a company's moat enables it to do is generate returns on its invested capital well above its cost of capital. so it's creating a spread between its return on invested capital and its cost of capital and that adds shareholder value every single year and certainly there are times where the market has already priced that in but a lot of times the market misses misses the mark with them and I'll, there's two kind of broad categories where that happens one is a company that its return on invested capital is growing at a high rate so it, maybe it goes from eight percent to 30 percent and the market has not figured that out yet it's rare for a company to grow and expand its advantages at that rate. And so that's one thing that we talk about is moat trend, is this company's moat getting wider. And sometimes the market doesn't fully appreciate that. And that's an opportunity. Another opportunity is when you have a very persistent return on invested capital. So the market is smart. And in most cases, companies that are generating high returns on invested capital it starts to fade closer to the market average over time. And so companies that continue to what they call beat the fade, continue to produce high returns on in invested capital for longer than the market expected, the market has to continually re-rate its expectations higher. And so you look at a company like Fastenol, which we own in the portfolio, it's generated very consistent returns on in invested capital for decades. And you would think that the market would have caught on but Fastenal has been one of the best performing stocks in the U.S. market over the past 30 years or so. And so it's and that comes back to the persistence. They continue to generate returns in invested capital um, above what the market had been pricing in. They had expected things to the competition to come in, whether it's online or from another competitor. And it just continued to hold their lead. And so those are the type of situations that we look for, you know, whether it's a company that's getting stronger and beating expectations or is just more persistent than other companies. But just going back, tying that into valuation, there are certainly situations where the market gets very enthusiastic about a story and it prices in expectations about returns on invested capital that are well beyond what the company is likely to do, in which case, if we own that stock, we would trim the position or sell it. So it, it's a case by case basis, but certainly companies with returns and invested capital tend to be overlooked by the market or undervalued. We've, we have a post on our website talking about how you could have paid uh, 40 times earnings for Costco for, I think, over a decade. And it never the P.E. never got even close to 40 times and you could have still earned a, like a nine percent return. I think it was eight or nine percent return. Uh, you could have paid a lot more for that business than the market was even pricing in. It's just that the market had not fully appreciated Cosmo's economics.
1: Costco is a a great example with Moat's too. We we talked about that recently with another guest. Maybe we can back up for investors who have no clue what return on invested capital is. I know it's not the easiest topic to describe because there's more advanced accounting to, to go behind it. But could you give the gist of pretend I'm like a high schooler and you were trying to explain return on investor capital to me, how would you do that?
2: Sure. So my, my boss, the president CIO of Ensemble Sean Stenrod Stockton had probably the best explanation that I've ever heard. And it's, at least to me, it was very simple to understand. And it's, imagine you have a printing machine and you fed hundred dollar bills into the printing machine. And on the other, you turn the machine on the other side came out $140 that's a really good business, right? <laughs> and if you, keep, if you keep putting that 140 in the machine, then you get 40% on that. And that's basically the way I think about returns on invested capital is the company is putting in invested capital, that's equity debt capital, and it's getting a return on that. And so the higher, the more free cash the company is spinning off each year, the more valuable the company should be all else equal. And so I'll give you another example. So Let's say you have two companies, both growing at 10% per year. They're in the same industry, let's say. One has a 20% return on invested capital. The other has a 10% return on invested capital. The 10% return on invested capital company has to reinvest all of its money back in the business just to maintain that 10% growth. Whereas the company that's generating 20% returns on invested capital only has to reinvest half to keep up 10% growth. So that extra capital is then available to shareholders as dividends, buybacks, or the company could do something else with it. And that company should, all sequel equal, be more valuable from like a multiples basis or you know, valuation in general, should be more valuable to an investor because of that extra cash that's coming through uh, and they're maintaining that growth rate. So uh, that to me is the way that we think about Returns on invested capital and why it's so valuable for investors to understand.
1: That's a brilliant explanation. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, it really is.
0: So, I guess going a a further, a step further on on the ROIC path, the cost of capital is related to that. So, can Mm -hmm. you maybe explain that a little bit as if I'm a high schooler as well?
2: Yeah, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. I think it was Charlie, it was, sounds like a Charlie response, but he said at one of the meetings maybe five years ago that he's never heard an intelligent conversation about cost of capital. So <laughs> we'll give it a go, though. And so I think the way that I, I think about it, the way we think about it, is that's the, the price of the capital that the company could get today if it went to market. And so let's say they wanted to, the company wanted to issue debt right now for 10 years what would the rate that they would get from the market be? So let's say it's 4%. And that would be the cost of debt for that company. And then you would have the cost of equity would be if you were paying or issuing stock at a fair price, an intrinsic value, let's say. And we'll talk about that perhaps in a minute. Intrinsic value, the principles behind it. What would be a fair return from that point. Let's say the market average is 9%. If you bought a company at fair value and it you, you would be comfortable with it growing about 9% a year, let's say the cost of equity is about 9%. And so those are the two factors that you know, we think about. One of the things that we do internally with cost of debt is I think we realize that current interest rates are abnormal. And so what we do is we take a sort of a normalized "quote unquote" five percent ten year is our starting point for thinking about cost of debt because you know some of these companies, especially companies like Costco that have double A ratings or triple A ratings, they're issuing ten year debt of zero point eight three percent, and that's just that's very <laughs> extremely low. <laughs> and, that, and that's before the tax benefit, right? Of of paying interest, just basically free capital. And so, how do you, if you look at the if you did a classic weighted average cost of capital on some of these companies you're talking about three, like 4% just doesn't seem reasonable. And so we, we think about it more from like a normalized cost of debt. And we think, look at the spreads on you know, what depends on what the company's debt rating is. If it was, if the triple then the typical spread is about 1% over treasuries. And so we think about cost of debt of that way, but yeah, it's, so I think it's just a way of thinking about what's the company's opportunity costs for, for its capital. And so, That's just the way to, that's the the most intelligent way I can explain the way we think about cost of capital. It's something that if you're taking the CFA exam or if you're in finance courses in university, you're going to be talking about quite a bit. And that's really just thinking about companies being able to get over that hurdle. So if you're generating turns below your cost of capital, you shouldn't be investing the money. It should be going back to shareholders because they could theoretically take that money put it in the S&P 500 index or something like that and generate higher returns than they could have got had you put it back in your business. That's It's not the most intuitive thought process about cost of capital, but it's a way of measuring, you know, is this company creating value or is it destroying value? And from our standpoint, we would never touch a company that was even close to its cost of capital because it's just not, or at least I, I should say, you know, there are companies that are currently generating cost of capital or below. But are reinvesting at high rates. So the incremental return on invested capital is very high. So you look at companies like you know, Netflix, they've been plowing capital into their business. And our expectation is that the return on that capital eventually will look very attractive. And so that's really where the disagreement is between market participants on Netflix is that people look at the low cost of capital and they say they're just. Burning capital, buying all this content, and we're saying no. Like they're going to be, they're going to be leveraging that over time. They're going to get a fixed cost for them now, and they're going to be generating each incremental subscriber that comes in, or as they raise their subscription, that's all going to drop to the bottom line. And so that will generate the, the good returns on invested capital down the road, or at least that's, that's our expectation. That's what we have.
1: So this kind of just popped into my head, but maybe would thinking of cost of capital be like? the cost to keep the printer running and then the printer is going to give us this return. But if the cost to keep the printer running is so high that let's say we made $105 after putting in a hundred dollars, but if it costs us money to keep yeah. the printer on, then it's like destroying value. Is that?
2: Yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. I think that's, that's the first time I've heard that. And I think it's, it makes sense. So if it was uh cost $8, let's say, to run the machine and you're getting putting hundred dollars in to get hundred five back it's you should have just kept a hundred right uh, yeah <laughs> that, that makes uh that makes sense to me
0: when it comes to financial advice you got to trust the source it's why you listen to this podcast when i'm looking to upgrade my wallet i turn to nerd wallet their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products before nerd wallet Nerd wallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. All right. You, you brought up the I word, intrinsic value. So yeah. maybe we could go down that that path a little bit and tell us a little bit about how you guys think about it and maybe how people
2: could help them think about it a little bit. Sure. So intrinsic value is a word that value investors in particularly, use a lot. And it's the best way that to describe it is you know, if you were to have a transaction between two parties that was equitable to both sides that would be what the intrinsic value theoretically should be for the buyer that would be am i going to generate a reasonable return on this so let's say it would be let's say 10% like the buyer would say you know i'm comfortable earning 10% if i buy this at fair value um, and then the seller saying you know that's that seems reasonable to me i'm i'm willing to off i think that that's a fair value for my business i think it it sizes up the opportunity it sizes up all the, the risks and I'm going to take that capital and do something else with it, whether retire or sell the business or whatever, right? Um, so I think that's the best way to describe it is just the, what would be a reasonable transaction between two independent parties, what they call arm's length transactions. There's no other incentive other than just making a, a fair trade. If you go to a flea market or something and you shake hands with the seller, it's you know, that's a fair price to me and to you and so that's how we think about it and we also i would say you know a lot of times you'll hear value investors say this company is worth exactly $83.23 <laughs> and while we have a target so we have what we think is a fair value for the stock we also see it as more of a distribution and so our the way that we trade around fair value is it's not like of the stock gets to exactly our fair value that we're going to sell the whole position. It also depends on what else is going on in our portfolio. Do we have other stocks that are that we don't currently own that are we think a better value. And so that's I think that can be confusing to especially uh, a, a newer investor. It's like why wouldn't you sell if you thought the stock was worth 80, the stock got to 80, why wouldn't you sell out? And the reason is that what fair value, what intrinsic value says is that from that point, you expect the company, if nothing, if your forecast of the business is exactly right, you should expect to earn the cost of equity for that business going forward. So if you have an $80 stock and it's worth 80, from that point, it should, because of the time value of money, as you roll, as you go forward each year, the company's value should increase by about 8% a year. Now sometimes if you're paying a little so excuse me, so if you pay a little bit above the fair value, your expected return might not be eight percent, but maybe it's seven and a half, and maybe relative to other things in the, available to you in the market, that might be still a very good return. So I think the way investors talk about value investing or intrinsic value is deeply rooted in value investing. So if you read Benjamin Graham, very much it's a that's the classic cigar butt scenario where Take a couple puffs and you sell and then you, you roll it in something else. But as investors in, I would say we don't like to make too much of the growth investing versus value investing. But when, you're, when you have a business that's compounding value each year, as Buffett says, time is the friend of the wonderful business. And so you don't necessarily have to be trading in and out of these great businesses and you know, when they get close to fair value, because that's what you're, you're told by, you know, the intelligent investor or security analysis from, from Benjamin Graham, it's a different process. And if I were a deep value investor, I might have a different approach where if, if I bought something that was it was I thought was well below its book value and it got the book value, maybe I exit. But in terms of like dynamic businesses, I don't think you want to be trading in and out of them as you get really close to fair value.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So how do you guys think about something like valuation? Is it, it, do you look at, there's lots of talk on media and Twitter and all those places about the differences between relative value and intrinsic value Mm -hmm. such that people use, you know, DCFs or those kinds of models. Are those kinds of things that you guys, how do you guys think about that kind of calculations, I guess?
2: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So I think a lot of beginning investors, uh, we they focus on. I mean, I did. I mean, I'm sure everybody, a lot of people do too. Mm-hmm. Is multiples. So mm-hmm. you look at what's the PE. What's PE is cheaper than that. So this one's cheaper than this. And that's we see that as a shorthand for doing valuation work. So the way we approach it is we do DCS, uh, this kind of cash flow model. So we look at the company's historical uh, financials and then project into the future. And then we can look at how much distributable cash we think the company is going to earn over the next 10 years. And then we have a a terminal value. And then we discount those cash flows to the present. And we think that's what fair value is. The future cash flows of a business discounted to the present at at a reasonable rate. That's the classic value investing. And what a lot of people in the market do, and this is really common especially in investment banking in sell side research is that you go off multiples Mm. and so you say the reason it's so prominent in the sell on the sell side especially is that and this is coming from someone who was on the sell side your job is to sell something right so you're selling your research to a buy side person like myself now where we're making the investment decisions and we want. Your take on what the company is worth now. And when you have, if you're doing discounted cash flow analysis on all of the companies under your coverage as a sell side analyst, you might very reasonably conclude that all of my stocks are either fairly valued or overvalued, Mm -hmm. in which case, nobody wants to talk to you. (laughs) <laughs> because you've got, you've got <laughs> nothing, nothing to sell <laughs> nothing to sell and so when you have relative when you're doing relative valuation you always have something to sell because something is always undervalued relative to to other holdings and so let's say you're covering 10 packaging companies that was the space i happened to cover you know if, if, if you have if you're comparing two companies and you're saying company a is trading for 30 times company b is trading for 22 times earnings whatever it might be company B is cheap relative to company A. <laughs> even, even and so you always have something to overweight or underweight or you know, or you can always you know, message that. And so I think that's important to understand especially if you're a newer investor and you're seeing upgrades, downgrades, price target changes. A lot of that is marketing. And there are some great sell-side analysts out there. I don't want to you know diminish that cuz their their role in the market is to provide investors with Insights about the company. They have industry expertise. When I was covering the packaging space, I would go to these conferences and the other sell side analysts from the other banks were had 10, 20 years covering these companies. And so they knew everybody. They knew mm-hmm. from the top to the middle management. And they were they were thinking things like, okay, this person is an up-and-comer. He's going to be the CEO in 10 years. And so they they know a lot of things, some of these analysts. So they're extremely valuable resource to investors. I don't want to diminish the sell side, but when it comes to the valuation work, we don't pay much attention to it because it's relative. And let me take another step back about about relative valuation is that I said earlier that it's a shortcut to intrinsic value because whether or not you're using relative valuation or you're using DCF, you're still making an assumption about future growth. Mm -hmm. So embedded into Price to earnings is an assumption about how much the company is going to grow, what sort of cash flows it's going to generate. And we find one of the values of doing a DCF is that you have an explicit forecast so that you can check as time goes on is this company hitting these targets Mm -hmm. to justify its current valuation? And if you're just going off of price to earnings or price to sales, you don't have that. So you're just following market trends, market momentum. There's no way for you to keep up with what's going on at the company and checking off whether or not they're following the path that you expected. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So when you listen to earnings calls, then the analysts that are interviewing or asking questions of the CEO and the CFO, those are sell side analysts, correct?
2: Yes. I can't think of many companies that would let a buy side investor on yeah. uh, a lot. Sometimes it'll happen. Sometimes a buy side investor will sneak in. You've seen sometimes like activist investors mm-hmm. will sneak into calls and it becomes a big controversy, but the companies are very careful about who they let on to calls and they will, I should say, so when I worked at, at Morningstar, we were not one of, we didn't have an investment bank arm. So the companies had no interest in doing business with us outside of, you know, the analyst work. Right. And so I was always the last person to, to ask he, a question. <laughs> and so it was common for that to happen. And it's just, it's, it's a game, right? Between right. the sell side and the company and getting access. And so I think you really have to take it with the sell side ratings with a, a grain of salt. There's, they provide a lot of value. I encourage people to read the notes and the insights, but also think about, the game that they're playing right. and not to say this company downgraded my company i need to sell like just take a step back <laughs> and check <laughs> and, and check your thesis and make sure that and try to get access to the note try to read it try to find out what the mm-hmm. analyst was saying the rationale for the downgrade sometimes it, it, it it's valid but if you look at the percentage of buy ratings holds ratings and sell ratings mm-hmm. is it's massively buy and hold Right. Because if you have a sell rating on a company, you're basically shutting off your access to management. And <laughs> it, it, it's really hard to because they, they'll come down on you. They'll mm-hmm. say, some, I shouldn't say some, you know, all of them. Some, some companies will go, they they care about that quite a bit. And they'll say, you got a you sell rating on us. And why should we <laughs> yeah. have you on the call or whatever? So there's a game. And so just as you're a, a newer investor, just be careful. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I like the calls because it, it does provide a, a, an interesting take on things that you may not think about just reading through the financials or just reading through the CFO or CEO's prepared remarks as they read them to you. Some companies I've noticed have gone, are starting to go away from that format a little bit. Mm-hmm. What What are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah. Pet peeves as, a, as an investor is having half of the conference call just a, being a regurgitated press release. Mm-hmm. And then they spend the last 20 minutes answering Q&A. And I, I see that as killing the clock. Yeah, they just they want to have fewer questions and be challenged, you know, by analysts. They don't want they want to avoid that as much as possible, so they keep talking about what's in their press release. And so I think companies that are opening it up, saying, "You've read the press release, ask us Q&A. I think that's a really good sign, actually, of, of companies that are willing to be open and, and transparent with the with the analyst community, the investor community, and the sell side analysts ask great questions. Mm, the most do. part, yeah. They have the, the sort of cliche like great quarter guys. You yeah. know, can you provide us <laughs> for color, color this. Yeah, so you, you, <laughs> there's again that's, that's part of the of the Kabuki dance. That's right. part of the show, and so you kind of have to look past that. But the, I would say analysts do touch on really good points, and in, in most of the questions that that we would ask would are generally being asked on the call.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So I'd like to pivot a little bit and talk about something that I know is near and dear to your heart. So you wrote, you wrote this great article on your website about how buy and so buy, uh, the buy and hold has gone away. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. And, and maybe we could dive into management and leadership and culture and some of those ideas. Sure.
2: Yeah. So the title of my article was provocative. So some intentionality, it was the there's no such thing as buy and hold. Mm-hmm. And there was there's nuance there. So what I was getting at in the article was that you can't buy and passively hold an equity like you could a static asset like gold or a painting because the underlying business is changing dramatically. A few bought Amazon in 1997. What you bought was an online book retailer. No. <laughs> and if you if, and if you buried your stock certificate in the backyard and dug it up today, what you own. Is not an online, just an online book <laughs> retailer. It's probably like less than one percent of the business. And you know, the point was that you know, even management changes. So Bezos was the CEO then, not now. And th- there's just so many changes happening at companies that they are they are they are complex. They are organisms mm-hmm. responding to internal and external changes. Mm-hmm. And you know, our our concern is really with people who were just buying something and just saying, "I can forget about this," because. That's not the right way to think about owning an equity is the the business changes. So therefore, you have to stay on top of what's going on with the business. Now, I think one of the reasons that sort of the quote unquote coffee can approach to buy and hold is attractive and has had some statistical good results is that investors, when you say you need to stay on top of this company, they do it too much. They get too nervous and they get too involved and they get too emotionally tied to the business and they'll buy and sell in and out of the business at the wrong time. But we think you can go in, again, thinking about milestones and thinking about how the company is progressing. Is the company making the right decisions right now? Do I think management, are they sticking with the strategy they said that they were going to do three, five years ago? Do we think that they are positioning the business the right way? And if so, continue to hold. And what I should have added in the article was that we have multiple holdings that we've held for over 10 years in a portfolio. So it's not like we're against buy and hold. It's just that we're calling out why you need to be careful with passive buy and hold that you have to understand that businesses are dynamic they're not static assets and it's important to be aware of that and not kind of stick your head in the sand because people what you'll hear a lot is someone will say i've owned disney stock for the past 40 years my grandfather had it in his in his lockbox and you'll hear stories about that but you never hear stories about grandpa's stock certificate for United States leather corporation or something that, you know, a railroad that is gone. So I think there's survivorship bias in those stories. And so it's important for investors to realize that not every company is worth holding. In fact, we would say you would really want to only hold great businesses, types that we're after, sort of companies that are middling returns on invested capital, aren't creating a lot of value. We would not suggest. Holding those passively at all, we would suggest if you were going to invest in those type of businesses that you're looking for a catalyst and that you're trying to get out as soon as the catalyst happens. And that's a different approach that we have.
1: I I think it's key to focus in on the fact that you said check in after three to five years. You didn't say three to five months, where there's no way you can make a decent guesstimate on how things have changed, if at all. Right. Because there's so much noise in the short term. And so you touched on the idea of management will change. We saw, tr- we're seeing a transition from Bezos to the next CEO. So, how do you think about just managements and leadership in general? And how does that factor into a buy and hold or sell kind of uh, decision?
2: Yeah. So, we have three core principles of companies that we own and we, we they have to have all three things otherwise they're ineligible for a portfolio and so we have to have a, a moat and we have to have a great management team and the business has to be forecastable there are businesses out there that are super complex and hard to understand and that's just mm-hmm. not really what we're after but going so, management is very key to our process in fact i think we have we, we score each company on seven attributes and management sort of as three of them so it's I would say it's a very important part of our process and so management we, the way we think about management is there are really two types of managed personnel management personalities so we see there's visionaries and there's optimizers that's the framework that we use and so a classic visionary example is Steve Jobs he there's no blueprint for success at the business and visionaries are often the best CEOs for those situations. They are creating value in ways that no one else understands because it's not yet in the rules. You're breaking all the rules. <laughs> and then you have optimizers, which I don't know if you've read uh, the book, the outsiders CEOs, yeah. those are classic <laughs> Optimizer CEOs. So there's a blueprint for success, like a John Malone type. Here's what you do. Like you, you, you structure the business this way and you'll create more value. Those are classic outsider CEOs, optimizer CEOs. And there's a blueprint for success, and they're just executing on that blueprint extremely well. And so we think there's value in both. I think value investors in particular tend to focus on these optimizers, whereas we we see value in also the visionaries. So these are guys who are creating. Great businesses creating products and services that no one else has considered, and both can add a lot of value to shareholders. So we we focus a lot on those two frameworks. We uh, haven't owned anything super dynamic in the, the the new innovation curve with like electric vehicles or anything like that. We don't own any companies in that space. Reed Hastings at Netflix is a comp- is is a leader that. We would suggest that is a classic visionary went from Mm -hmm. mailing DVDs by mail to streaming streaming, to creating content. There was no blueprint for success. And now now everyone was trying to catch up. And so they went from rule breaker to rule maker. And so there's this transition and now Mm -hmm. they have they're changing leadership a bit. And now they're moving more, I would suggest, to more of an optimizer type of approach where they are now we have the blueprint for success. Now we just execute. We have this lead. We have the, the dominance. Now we transition. And so we think about CEOs that way. Uh, think about two different types of personalities and there can be a mix, too. So you might have someone like Mark Zuckerberg who at Facebook, and then he has Sheryl Sandberg who's this optimizer. Mm-hmm. And like you think about the, the balances between different personalities of, of management teams, and, and that can change over time. So you might have a company that has been run by an optimizer for a long time, but then needs a visionary to come in and revitalize the business. So mm-hmm. over time, that changes. But management is key because they are they are the torchbearers, so to say, of the moat. And they have to make sure that there's no moat erosion happening behind the castle walls is another article I've written is about, Mm -hmm. you know, how mode erosion often doesn't come from external sources. It's not like a competitor shows up one day and starts invading the, the the castle while it's strong. Typically what happens is the the castle gets weak first, Mm -hmm. and then the competition comes in. And so management teams who don't keep their foot on the gas and keep the company moving forward. Once they start settling into routine, things start to happen, it gets bureaucratic. And that's, I think what Bezos is after with his day one and day two philosophy. Amazon needs to stay on day one. And we don't own Amazon for any disclosure. I'm just familiar with the business. Mm-hmm. So you. Know, I think that's what he's after, is he doesn't want the company to get-, you know, get Complacent. Complacent, yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how erosion begins. And so management sets the culture for the business. The rest of the business looks to the CEO, the CFO- to set an example and some of the best companies that, that, that we follow are ones where there's what we call a founders pedigree so even though the founder may not still be there the com- they've set a tone at the company for successive generations to to follow mm. and that's uh, those are great situations where it's just this is the way we do things we do it this way we'll always do it that way and that's a great sort of sign as you're looking through companies that if they've had like a strong family ownership over the years or uh, a dynamic CEO at some point who set the tone for the rest of the business. That's one thing we own a company called Mossimo, which creates primarily tetherless, non-invasive pulse oximetry meters. So if you go to the hospital, for example, uh, you'll get one of those glowing red things on your finger that keeps track of your (laughs) Pole socks, yeah, and uh, so they make most of those in the U.S. They pretty much have a dominant share in the ICU and operating parts of of the hospital. But they have a founder, Joe Kiani, who, when we visited the company at their investor day, and I think it was 2019. The, the whole COVID quarantine has warped time. <laughs> so yeah. I'm trying to remember. I think 2019. <laughs> that was one thing we we picked up from talking with other people at the business was not all of them were there for a paycheck. They were there to solve big problems. They wanted to make healthcare more efficient and more affordable. And that, those are things that, that just you know, get us excited about a business is when mm-hmm. people have this intrinsic motivation and they're not worried as much about what's my pay going to be this month. They're there for a purpose. And mm-hmm. That's something we really, really like to see.
0: Yeah that that's awesome. So I guess that kind of how as outside investors can we move past some of the fancy jargon and pretty words that people will say as their yeah. culture. And I can say this from experience because I, I I worked for Wells Fargo for five years and, and this was right as all the scandals started to hit. So I was in, I saw the evolution of you got to sell to, okay, maybe we don't need to do this. and Maybe we actually need to take care of our customers. So I saw them trying to change yeah. the culture, but so how as an outside investor, how can we look through, look past some of that stuff?
2: really good question i think if i recall correctly enron was like one of the best places to work (laughs) in 1999 or something and so you always have to be cognizant of that and a lot of times there is almost it's not my favorite word but like a cult around around the company it's an us versus them type of mentality and that can be healthy for sure if you look at companies if they have a name for the employees like googlers or when i worked at vanguard we were the crew if there's a certain culture that's that creates this dynamic of we have shared values and we want to defend those values and what you'll often see if you go to Glassdoor and start researching the company look for how the company's employees are talking about it and if they're if they're saying like Good paycheck, time. You get, I get enough time on the clock or whatever. That's okay. But what you really want to see is a real fierce debate, and the debate is key. If everyone's just super positive about it, it's probably not durable. But if you're if you have people on there who said I joined, I didn't get it. Things weren't working out. I just wasn't a great fit. That's actually interesting when that happens because that tells you that there's a clear culture where some people don't fit yeah. with that culture, and then. We think companies that are in that dynamic do really well, especially when challenged. So when I worked at the Motley Fool, I was there during the financial crisis. And it was a great experience for a 27-year-old at the time because I got to see firsthand what a great culture can do in a crisis. We went did a lot of the other corporate stuff. I think some of our benefits were, were temporarily put on hold or whatever, but we all knew that this was a huge opportunity for us to provide tremendous value to our subscribers and how the and we stayed focused on making sure that we provided that value and now it came out stronger on the other end. And so I think that's a sign of a great culture is when you can rally everyone to a cause, especially when challenged, because I've worked at a bank before <laughs> and I, I know that when, when a challenge comes, the employees might go, Gosh, this is just not really what I want to do today. Mm. And so that attitude is very different from a dynamic company that's servicing customers and cares a lot about how the customer is getting value, how their suppliers are getting value. We talk a lot about, and Sean's written a lot about this for our blog, about stakeholders, you know, making sure that every stakeholder, not just shareholders, not just employees, but customers, suppliers, the community, is, is considered when the company is making decisions. And so I, I think there's one thing you can do to make sure that the company is not just talking the talk is go to YouTube, look, look, look through videos, see if there's people talking about the, the business, read local business journals. A lot of times companies that have really good corporate cultures, it may not get written about in the Wall Street Journal, but it might be in the local business paper. Mm-hmm. People saying top place to work in Kansas City or Cincinnati where I am—that's a yeah. good sign that there's something happening there that people are enthusiastic about working there. Also, look at the track record too. Companies like Costco or Starbucks, which you also own, their their focus on taking care of stakeholders goes back 20 years, mm-hmm. and you've seen it uh, play in year in and year out. And so you can give that validation. But if a company all of a sudden is just, hey, we're going to treat everybody nice now, <laughs> yeah. that, that might be a red flag that maybe let's just give it a couple of years at least and see if they're mm-hmm. if they're serious about this.
0: Yeah, I think that those are great insights. And you could argue probably very easily that the more successful the culture is, the more successful the business is going to be over the long term. And that's going to help the stakeholders or shareholders in the long term.
2: That's right. And we, we think that's a, a very important thing to understand about businesses. Try to understand the culture before making an investment. And that's not always easy to do, as you said, unless you're as outside investors, we see maybe 10% of what goes on in the business. Mm. Right? We just we get quarterly updates, but we don't know what's happening politically, internally. We've all worked at companies and seen what goes on behind behind the scenes. And so it's important as shareholders to the more we can understand the culture, the more we can be comfortable in our assumptions about how this company is going to do over the longer term. If we don't have no idea you know, we don't know if the CEO is going to leave tomorrow or whatever it's going to be, if we, if we have a culture, we can understand the CEO might leave, but the CEO will probably has enough respect for the institution to do it properly and take their time in the transition. Those are things that, that we think are, are very important. And it's something that value investors, I keep, I, I don't want to come off as me like bashing value investors. I think it's, 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 we Sean, the matter colleague and, myself, all came up as value investors. Mm-hmm. But my perception has changed a bit. It's becoming more like you know, business-focused, understanding what's going on at the business, the qualitative aspects of things. And so the more quantitatively-minded analysts, the more value-oriented analysts may not spend as much time looking at culture. And so I think that's something that if you are more of a qualitative thinker, like, like I am, I was a liberal arts major in college, I was not a finance major, <laughs> Coming, trying to focus on these sort of big ideas, these big concepts can be very valuable.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's, the, I think that's a great idea. You, I think the importance of what you're talking about, you can, you're starting to see this in companies like Walmart and Amazon who have not had great reputations in the public eye for how they've treated employees in the past. And they have, they're working hard to try to rehabilitate their image yeah. because they understand, I think now that this, that impacts their business.
2: Yes. And that's something I think is very interesting is, how ESG impacts corporate decisions. And you know, we're still coming up with our own take on how to think about this. But And you'll see people be cynical about ESG saying, well, it's just marketing or whatever. But it's really not. The, these co- corporate boards, they have lobbying groups. They have special interest groups coming to them saying, hey, if you want to hit your targets... You've got to change your power sources. You've got to change the way you're generating electricity or whatever it might be. There, there are things that you know, are being talked about at the board level for helping the country, helping the world hit climate change targets and, and, and things like that and, and improving labor relations. And all these things matter. And that's why we take a lot of focus on stakeholders is we think that all SQL companies that have for a long time cared about stakeholders uh, will be in a great position because they don't have to radically change their cultures to accommodate a company like like starbucks for example has long been talking about sustainable sourcing of products and we also own chipotle and they've been very forthcoming about freshly prepared foods and sustainably sourced meat and, and vegetables and they're in sort of the driver's seat right now because they Are already, they've already made those changes. It's already part of their corporate culture. But if you've, if you are now having to change, that's going to be costly. It's going to take time. It might change your culture. It might impact your business.
0: Yeah, those are great insights. And I, that across the board, a company like Culver's here in the Midwest, they, they were one of the first fast food places to really embrace that whole idea of, you know, fresh meat and local source kind of things to really enhance the reputation as well as the product itself. So, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Obviously, Todd, we greatly appreciate your time with us today, and we love all the great insights and all your explanations. And thank you for taking the time to explain everything like we're a high schooler, because that helps a lot. Where could people find more about
2: you and what you guys are doing at, at Ensemble Capital? Sure. So Ensemble Capital's blog is intrinsicinv.com. And you can find us on Twitter at intrinsicinv. And we're on there quite a bit. Sean and I both tweet from there and so if you would like to reach us you certainly can and we're out out in the social media world so we should be easily found if you want to email us directly it's uh, info at dot okay awesome
0: Th- again thank you so much for your time and for your knowledge and, and sharing all that with us it was amazing i really enjoyed the conversation
2: that's a pleasure thanks so much for having me
0: you're welcome thank all you right.
2: todd thanks we hope you enjoyed this content
1: The information contained is for
2: general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.
1: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
2: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Haha, in my dentist's office. 18 plus.